Susan Moran. And I'm Maeve Conran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today's Tuesday, September 11th, 2018. Coming up, we'll hear about the impressive vocal cords and sex lives of crickets from two Colorado naturalists, Steve Jones and Scott Sievers. And we'll explore the science of foliage, what makes aspen and other plants' leaves turn brilliant colours or simply fade and shrivel. Jeff Mitten, a CU Boulder evolutionary biologist, is here in the studio to discuss the physiology of foliage. So stay tuned. We're going to skip headlines today to spend more time on our two end-of-summer features. One of the most poetic sounds of the end of summer is, well, no, it's not your kids kicking and screaming because summer is over. It's actually the sound of crickets and other melodic insects chirping as the sun sets. Today, we bring you an extended version of the September Nature Almanac on KGNU, and it's about a temperature cricket in Colorado called the Snowy Tree Cricket. Snowy tree crickets are called a temperature cricket because you can count how many times they chirp in a certain time period in order to calculate what the temperature is. How on Earth's Shelley Schlender took a stroll recently with two Boulder naturalists, Steve Jones and Scott Sievers, to learn more about how crickets in general make their chirping sound and why we hear so many of them in the evenings this time of year. Note, you learned something you may not have known before about courtship and sex. It's September. What's happening in the natural world? Here are Boulder naturalist Steve Jones and Scott Sievers. We're hearing a snowy tree cricket. This is a nice patch of goldenrod that it's singing from, probably at the underside of the leaf. So many of us who are interested in cricket thermometers have gone to the old farmer's almanac. They said for years, you count the number of chirps in 14 seconds and add 40 and you get the temperature in Fahrenheit. But what really got me is they just said cricket. How many cricket species do you think there are in North America? There are hundreds. If these are snowy tree crickets here, which is likely in Boulder County, we're supposed to count for 20 seconds and add 40 and you get the temperature in Fahrenheit. You ready? Yep. Go. Thirty. Thirty. And then we add 40, so that'd be 70 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah, it feels right about that. If we'd stuck the farmer's almanac, we would have been way off. Yeah. That's probably based on an eastern cricket that we don't exactly. even have. The literature I said is that our crickets are, you have to adjust for your geographic a little bit. Yeah, so you have to use a different formula for whichever cricket. Let's listen again. Let's try it one more time and count it. I'm going to sure. do the stopwatch one more time, see if it's speeded up or... Um, Okay, ready? Go. Thirty-three. 
31, so that would be 71 degrees. Yeah, I found the same. Well, we just met a little toddler who um, is pretty darn efficient on that bike, much more than I was at their age. It's good to be safe around cars. Definitely. If you see any crickets, tell us, okay? <laughs> We're walking along the Bobolink Trail just east of the East Boulder Rec Center. The sun's just coming down. You can just see a little bit of the rays of the sun still peeking through the clouds. That constant trill is a Carolina ground cricket. And the ones that sound like tinkling bells are Allard's ground cricket. Of the tree crickets, probably snowy tree cricket is the most common in our area. They're mostly green with a very whitish color, and that's where they get this name Snowy. So these are green. Yeah. They look almost like lace wings or little tiny katydid. And they're beneficial insects. They eat a lot of aphids, and they generally are not injurious to plants. Tree crickets love trees and bushes. The males tend to find a favorite perch and sing from that. They start about 10 minutes before sunset. How do they do this? They have, on their wings, they have sort of like, one has sort of like a saw blade, right? That's right. It used to be in the children's story that they're rubbing their leg against their wing. But it's actually a little bevel on one wing and a little zipper on the other. And they're rubbing that together. And then that makes the sound. When we hear a chirp... That's not one note. That's a series of notes, and they're so fast that we can't even distinguish them. Each time they make a note, they're rubbing their wings together. So they're not rubbing their wings together twice a second. That's what we're hearing. They're doing it, what, dozens of times a second. It's very fast. When the male realizes a female, he's got her attention. He softens his call so she can locate him more easily. Now, he's got to transfer his sperm package into her abdomen, and she's not really up for that. So what he does is he rubs this gland. He has this gland on his thorax, and it releases a really sweet, delicious liquid, and she starts lapping that up. And she doesn't even notice that she's mating with this guy when he transfers his sperm packet. And he has to keep her attention after they've finished mating because if the sperm hasn't had enough time to transfer from the spermatophore, she'll start eating that too. That's very nutritious, the yes. sperm. Anyway, whoever dreamed this up, they were quite a creative character. And they'll even use the leaves to enhance their sounds so that the females surrounding them can find them. They'll even chew off some of the leaves, break them off to create sort of an opening so the sound goes to the female. Now it takes about five different molts for the young that emerge in the spring to reach adulthood. So they'll molt, shed their skin, and we really, I'll see them in my yard crawling around in the salvia, but they won't have reached maturity until the latter half of July, and that's when they start singing 
they'll sing all the way to frost. This is really beautiful and soothing. And we're listening to South Boulder Creek trickling by and this cricket. It's about 15 minutes after sunset. You can hear them almost in every tree. It's the sound that people think, ah, that's the sound of walks at dusk. Sort of the sound of the end of summer. It really is. Summer turning toward fall. Steve Jones and Scott Sievers are friends and Boulder naturalists. Thanks to How on Earth's Shelley Schlender for producing that extended version of KGNU's Nature's Almanac, which she produces and broadcasts on the first Friday of every month here on KGNU's Morning Magazine. The two naturalists, Steve Jones and Scott Sievers, are also part of the Nature Almanac team. You are listening to KGNU's Science Show, How on Earth? I'm Susan Moran. If you've had a chance to take a hike in the open space along the Front Range or in the high country, you've no doubt seen the yellow-orange hues of fall emerging already. One of the most iconic images one can experience in Colorado is the fall, in the fall, is the aspen groves in their brilliant yellow, orange, and even red. This year, the aspen and many other plants are actually changing colors earlier than normal. Granted, normal is a shifting state these days. Many of the tree's leaves have been fading and shriveling without turning bright colors. We'll explore what dictates the timing and intensity of foliage, as well as what's happening with some other deciduous flora in Colorado with our guest today. Dr. Jeff Mitten is an evolutionary biologist and a professor emeritus at the University of Colorado Boulder. He also writes a bi-weekly column, which many of you have probably read, in the Daily Camera. It's called Natural Selections. Jeff, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm, I'm pleased to be here, Susan. So first, introduce us to this character. Many of us no, I mean, it is one of the most iconic and beautiful scenes ever. Colorado, I think we, we get the best of them. But, but who, who are they? And they have some comparison with dinosaurs and blue whales, right? They do. Uh, quaking aspen is the most widespread deciduous tree in North America, going all the way from Mexico to Alaska, from the Pacific to the Atlantic. And we know it here as a tree that uh, forms groves or clones. And when I say... So a clone, yeah, is a grove, but physiologically? uh, Physiologically and physically, a clone is uh, a group of things that look like trees, but they're connected underneath by the root system. So they share a common root system, so it is one single individual that looks like a grove. And could span several acres, even. Uh, several acres, or uh, the the largest uh, clone is in Fish Lake. The clar- largest clone that we know about is in Fish Lake, Utah, and that one covers 106 acres. 106 acres, and this was discovered, as it were, to be the largest living organism in the world? Well, with... With Jan Linhart and Mike Grant, I, we made that claim. Mike Grant, the, both of CU Boulder. Right? All three of us, CU mm-hmm. Boulder. 
and uh, we we said that uh, uh, this was far larger than the humongous fungus if you considered <laughs> the weight of something, and they were calling the humongous fungus the largest living thing at that time. And so, to get into that lighthearted argument, uh, we not a fierce battle on this front. No, <laughs> <laughs> just having fun. Uh, and so we we pointed out that the weight of this clone would be far greater than the biggest dinosaur or a blue whale or any other living thing that we know about. So if a grove is a clone, or can be, a tree is actually not a tree as we know it, right? In that sense, when you're walking through a, a grove of aspen, what you think of as a tree, uh, that, that column or stem in front of you, is called a ramet because it's not really a tree. A tree is an individual, and what you're inside of is an individual. So we call those, in a clonal system, a ramet. Uh, just wow, like... so we are ramets too in the sense that we are all connected. Yeah. I know we've got Alan Watts talking about this metaphysical stuff later, but... <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. So it, it is clearly one of the most beautiful expressions of nature. I think many would agree, this fall foliage. But tell us what actually is it? What's happening physically, physiologically in the plants, starting with aspen? Aspen look green during the summertime. Their leaves are green, and that's because of the preponderance of chlorophyll, which is the major pigment for uh, uh, capturing light and turning it into sugars. Uh, but uh, there are other pigments as well. And so uh, during the summer, chlorophyll is used up uh, or, or broken down, but it's also regenerated. Towards the end of summer, it begins to be regenerated more slowly, and other pigments begin to then be expressed or to, to appear. They've been there all summer. There are xanthophils, which are yellows. Xanthophil? Yes. And there are carotenoids, which tend to be orange. And so as the green fades, these yellows and oranges appear. They've been there all summer, but now you can see them. And, and so, so it has nothing to do with soil type that makes some red, you know, the few orange and red in the midst of all the yellow. No, those tend to be uh, constant from year to year, and it's not a matter of uh, soil type. Uh, the, the people, the horticulturists can actually select for more red tr uh, aspen, uh, just like you can select for horses of different colors mm -hmm. or hamsters of different colors. And so uh, those are genetic characters. And some have more carotenoids and some have less. Some have more xanthophils and less. But then something else that happens at the beginning, at the end of summer, is that uh, as the chlorophyll is disappearing and the temperatures are getting lower, the chlorophyll becomes more and more sensitive to, uh, to light. So some trees turn on a red pigment. They actually produce now a red pigment that hasn't been there, hmm. and that is to protect the remaining uh, chlorophyll so that it can be, um, it's, it's being scavenged, and the nitrogen is being taken out of the leaves and being put into the, I believe it goes to the root system. So from a natural selection standpoint, it seems there'd be more red. If this is, or it's kind of the last defense, right? Um, 
for some trees, uh, there's a lot of red, and for others, there's not. And uh, Aspen in particular, I'm thinking. Uh, and there's not very much red in Aspen. Uh, red maple is one that really turns red. Oh, and, yes. Uh, so different species are different, but within a species, there are color differences as well. And so, I mean, there's the whole aspect of CO2 and, you know, that trees, all forest or carbon sinks. They soak up all this CO2, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere during the summer and then essentially exhale it. And kind of also always makes me sad, or it is such a reminder in the fall, it is part of a natural cycle, but we so desperately need these carbon sinks now. We Not do. Not that we can depend on trees to save ourselves from ourselves, but what's your take on that? Well, uh, uh, the, the carbon sinks are important, and the uh, carbon dioxide that has been pulled out of the air, some of it is let back out by respiration, but some of it is uh, captured and stored as cellulose, uh, as the tree gets bigger and bigger, and that makes it a carbon sink. Uh, and I think it's interesting that you said sad, because there's another sad, and that's with respect to aspen. It's the abbreviation uh, sudden aspen death. Mm. And this was noticed perhaps 15 years ago by the Forest Service. They looked for a cause, insects, fungus, uh, any sort of pathogen, worms, they couldn't find anything. And I'm convinced that that is a matter of climate change because the clones which are dying tend to be at lower elevations and on southwestern, southwestern facing slopes. And those are drier and hotter? And hotter, yes. Mm. And so there are places where aspen has been growing for, dec for centuries that are now getting too warm to uh, host aspen. And I think that is the cause of SAD, but it's also having an impact on our fall coloration this fall. Uh, because cool. if you've noticed, uh, there are some trees which turned a, a pale green uh, and pretty much stopped. I mean, they don't express that brilliant yellow, orange, or red. And uh, uh, why that happens, I'm not quite sure. All I can say is that um, a, uh, a drought stress uh, and perhaps heat on top of that uh, have disrupted the orderly pattern of withdrawal of chlorophyll and scavenging of, of nitrogen. And so I have seen clones that uh, turned uh, tan-colored and just dropped their leaves, and I've seen some that have already dropped completely. Doubly uh, sad. Yes, doubly sad. Yeah. Yeah, so this year is not going to be, or it's already not as, shall we say, brilliant I or think in, optimal as some I, years. I think in some places it will be, because in some places, higher in the mountains, um, they're not particularly dry. Uh, there's At higher elevations, there's, there's less loss of water, uh, and there's more rainfall. And so we have dry places, but we also have some that are still quite wet. Hmm. So, so it sounds like get out earlier, though, uh, and expect the peak to be sooner. Like uh, this last weekend, I was out with a good friend hiking at Brainer Lake and along Peak to Peak Highway. It was stunning. As usual, you had to watch where you're driving because everyone's stopping <laughs> and taking the photographs, but it certainly looked beautiful. And other people have reported early colors on Keebler Pass, Kenosha Pass, 
Monarch Pass. And a couple of nights ago, I was up in Rocky Mountain National Park to photograph the Milky Way. And I noticed on Trail Ridge Road, there was already color. Uh, and I don't expect to see uh, that color there and, until another week or so. So I, I think it's a little bit early in Rocky Mountain National Park. What creates optimal conditions? I think optimal uh, has simply been what, what the trees have gotten used to and what we have gotten used to. Uh, I think a, a wet spring, uh, a wet summer that then turns into a somewhat dry fall with uh, chilly nights, mm. though that combination seems to bring on a, a vibrant fall. Like a more clear transition. Yeah. As opposed to a long, kind of drawn out, hot, dry, with a little bit of rain or moisture here and there. Uh, yes. And um, though I will say that uh, I've, I've also read some papers recently that say that the prediction of fall colors is still... Uh, a miserable science. Uh, the predictability huh. of it cannot be predicted by temperature and, and rainfall. It's just, it's very hard to uh, discern what's going to happen. It's not like you know where the next eclipse is going to be. Right. And when. Now they do, there is some reliability here because uh, there's a drought this year in Colorado and there's a gradient in the drought. The The drought is not so, uh, not so bad in the northern western portions of the state, and it gets increasingly bad as you go south. It is believed that that drought is going to stress the aspen, uh, and that will break up the, the orderly withdrawal of chlorophyll. And so uh, the uh, if chlorophyll is not being produced, uh, fall starts early, and it looks like early will be more and more distinct the further south you go. That's the prediction anyway, and I think that sounds like a reasonable prediction to me. And drought is one particular event, granted multi-year in this case, but it's one element of a much broader context, and in this case, climate change. I mean, given the predictions that we see for the region, for the nation, for the globe, but particularly for, for the nation in the southwest, do you expect uh, this trend line to continue that will affect the foliage, of course, but all of us. I do expect it to continue uh, and to, to get the signal to get stronger. I think growing seasons are getting longer. I, I don't have to think that. We know that. And the farmers in the Midwest rely on it now. Mm -hmm. So it's a win for some, right? Uh, for some, yes. Uh, for the trees in general, they see a longer growing season with no more water. And so trees don't particularly like this climate change thing. And conifers are actually fixing less carbon from the atmosphere than they were several decades ago. So for some trees, the, the longer growing season is actually um, uh, a bit of a stress. And put a drought on top of that, mm. and that's what we've got this year. Mm-hmm. And I know you've been looking and you will be heading out. Where are some of your favorite places that you will be heading out? Perhaps not only for Aspen. We've been focusing on Aspen here, but they're glorious. Whether it's cottonwoods or the shrubs you see in the foothills and the tundra itself, just all turning pretty spectacularly. I like to uh, go to the mountains here in the Front Range, and then after that has passed, I head for the San Juan. 
Mm. And I find the the most beautiful aspen in the Cimarron Valley and the Little Cimarron Valley near you, Ray. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, over by Telluride, there are many, many groves over there. And so that's where I usually go in the fall. In this fall, I'm I'm not going to concentrate on aspen. I'm going to look for cottonwoods. Uh, the big cottonwoods along the rivers can be gorgeous. Mm -hmm. They tend to, to turn later than aspen. Uh, they're at lower elevations and uh, a little bit warmer, so they, they tend to turn later. Uh, and they can be every bit as striking as aspen. In other parts in the southwest, you can see uh, a variety of oaks that also grow as clones, and uh, these turn red, yellow, uh, something like a maroon, mm. and some of them just stay or just turn brown. So they can give you a mottled quilt that is really quite lovely. Uh, and those, those trees get to be five to 10 feet tall, but they can, they can also cover uh, a considerable distance they might be 40 or 50 feet across. Oh, and so many we can see right along the front range, particularly the cottonwoods and, boy, the emerald ash. Those are some of the most stunning, oh, I yes. think, and sadly, we're losing a lot of them to emerald ash borer. I see so many of them getting chopped down or injected. Well, that, that is sad, and uh, though I, I did notice this, that none of the uh, ash trees are native to Colorado. Oh, uh, well then. Uh, so I don't know uh, if this is... Um, uh, fair or not, but uh, the, they're not natives and they're, they're getting bashed badly. Well then, <laughs> perhaps we shouldn't shed as many tears for them, but that's a lot of tree canopy in certainly Boulder County and much of the Front Range. It certainly is. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Susan. That was Dr. Jeff Mitten, an evolutionary biologist and a professor emeritus at the University of Colorado Boulder. You can read his bi-weekly columns called Natural Selections in the Daily Camera. Just keyword search Jeff Mitten, that's M-I-T-T-O-N, and we'll link to his columns and other foliage resources on our website, howonearthradio.org. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran and engineered by me, Maeve Conran. Additional contributions from Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Ella Fitzgerald. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Maeve Conran.